Ahlan wa sahlan bikum ya jama'a, my name is Malik and I am joining you from UCL Arab and North African Society. We are bringing you the Salam wa Kalam podcast series in which we, as young Arabs and North Africans, have laid back conversations on topics such as culture, current affairs and life as an Arab student in the West. We also share our speaker event recordings in which we host academics and professionals and explore their journeys and stories. If you want to see the faces behind our podcasts, do check out our Instagram page. The link is in the description. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Um, as a journalist in Libya, so what kind of things you encountered whilst you were journalists with people um, during the uprising? Well, I was there. Um, yeah, hello, everybody. Anyway, good evening. It's nice to, nice to see you all. I'm glad you all come to... Um, take a look and have a listen. Um, I was in Libya um, always during that year, always on the regime side, because basically journalists had a choice. They could go and find their way to Benghazi and go west. Or you could come in if you got a visa from the, the Libyans. At the very start, we were able to fly in, uh, but quite quickly, all that changed. And so when we arrived first time, just after the uprising had started, uh, the airport was being besieged. Thousands of foreigners, uh, mainly you know, domestic staff, Filipinos, uh, Bangladeshis were all trying to get out, Egyptians, thousands. The airport was overrun for weeks with people sleeping out in the, um, in the cold. And, you know, because Libya's, North Africa, but it was February, and you know, as anyone who's been there knows, it, at night particularly, it can get pretty wet and cold. Anyway, um, so I was always on the side of the regime, uh, well, physically, not ideologically. Uh, I would have liked to have tried the other side, but it was just, you know, only a certain number of people could get visas, and the BBC always wanted me to go on the the side of the, uh, the enemy, as it were, particularly since when we were the British and of the NATO countries plus Gulf countries like the UAE started bombing them. Um, how did I find it? Well, uh, Tripoli under Gaddafi was, it was quite, um, I suppose you should say, quite fearful. People were, the streets were quiet. People were scared. And there were a couple of areas Tajura was one, uh, which have a tradition, which had a tradition of dissent, and um, and they would, uh, particularly on a Friday, there'd be for for a while, didn't last for that long, but for a while there were big um, public demonstrations, and these public demonstrations were, you know, they came out of the mosque after the the noon prayer. And they would, you know, yell and scream. And there was a roundabout they'd go to. And then until the security forces arrived. And we would smuggle. We weren't meant to go. So we'd all smuggle ourselves out of the hotel, or quite a lot of us would, and try and sneak around and try and get there. It was a bit of a game in a way, but a nasty game. All that came to an end when they really cracked down and killed quite a lot of people um, in that part of the, of the city. So um, 
we did, you know, we would have contacts with, clearly with regime people, and that was interesting. We were staying at this, they put us, we all had to stay at this hotel called the Rixos, which was a very fancy hotel, which they built, I think, for people working in the, the oil business. Uh, I mean, really fancy hotel. Um, it was nice, it was comfortable. And because the foreign journalists were there, uh, the... Um, a lot of regime people, quite senior, including, you know, Safe, the uh, the son of the of the leader, uh, would 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 be there every night, and they come and eat, and they reckoned that because we were there, it wouldn't get bombed. Um, and so talking to those guys at a senior level, night after night, was interesting. But we would also have some connections with people, and if you went to some, with someone someone in the street with a TV camera. And so, what do you think of the leader? They would say, he is the most wonderful person in the world. We love him. He's the best for, uh, for Libya. And then he'd have these, these rallies where they'd bus in busloads of people who chant the same thing. They'd be paid, of course. Um, and uh, he would go on. He'd make speeches for hour after hour. And I remember one, I was sitting there. And uh, I got, I befriended um, Gaddafi's interpreter, uh, a Libyan diplomat who now lives in London. Um, very nice guy, actually. And after about an hour of this, he just said, he said, God, he said to me, have you had enough? I've heard this so bloody often over the years. Let's go and have lunch. The buffet's open at the hotel, which was always a big moment. So we, we left and went to, went to visit. We'd heard everything we had to hear from Gaddafi. Um, so when the bombing started, it was, uh, there's just one thing I want to tell you more, which is people would contact us. And we had this these clandestine contacts with people who approached my producer. Um, and, you know, we would have these sort of, secret type meetings where they, we'd have a brush past in a shop. We'd arrange to, and he would just palm her, uh, say, a, you know, a little flash drive with video or pictures or something like that on her information. And after, the, after Gaddafi was overthrown, we went and met all these people properly. But up to then, it had only been just a quick brush past. That was it. Long answer, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. So, yeah, I think support in... Um, Libya regarding Gaddafi was quite polling. Obviously, you had the rebels that thought, you know, they didn't want this dictator, and you had these people mm. um, that had utmost love for him. Kind of weird, like the, some people question like the, the love behind Gaddafi. You know, in terms of like why it was so kind of close to him. I, I know that even when um, people came into like contact with, or when he was in anyone's presence people had to stand up and start singing a song. Um, I mean, Gaddafi kind of had that like air, like atmosphere around him that meant that people had to do things um, in certain ways. They were, uh, they were terrified of it. They were, yeah, they were terrified. That, yeah, that's exactly right. Unless you were in the elite, unless you were, there was an elite which was basically the officers with whom he seized power in 1969. Mm. And they were the people who ran the country and their sons, uh, would also run the country. Yeah. But Gaddafi him, himself was, you know, his vengeance was terrible. Uh, people, you know, I went into the prisons after they were liberated and talked to plenty of people who'd spent years in these prisons. I went around the cells 
in the prisons and uh, saw, you know, the torture chambers. Uh, so, you know, it was not a pleasant experience to be one of those those people. Yeah. What's interesting is hearing the stories about, you know, him kind of, when he is in people's prison. I remember my mum telling me um, he'd walked into a classroom uh, where, she, where she was and she literally, everyone had to stand up to kind of mark his presence. And my mum didn't mark his presence because my, my father, my, his, her father, my grandfather, didn't, didn't really like him, uh, his ideology, anything. And he actually quest- questioned it with her um, and told some of his like fellow elites, you know, who is this person that isn't kind of doing these things, not, not singing along when, when I come into the room. Um, and yeah, and so she contacted, she was contacted and she was told about that. Um, I, I think that Gaddafi had been in power for so long mm-hmm. and, you know, as was well known, he was a very eccentric person. Yeah. I think he actually had started believing his own propaganda, which is a very dangerous thing for anybody, particularly a leader. Because wherever he went, for years and years and years and years and years, there would be people cheering wherever he went. Mm. And I think that he, uh, when I interviewed him, I would, did the last, with a couple of other journalists, I did the last proper interview with him before yeah. he was overthrown yeah. and killed. All that interview is like, very, very interesting to watch. I mean, how was that, you know, interviewing Gaddafi? Like, how, how well, that... I, I managed to wind him up quite nicely, I think. Yeah, so... Uh, he, well, he, and he, he said, you know, I, I said, what about these demonstrations? And he said, what demonstrations? He said, all my people love me. They love me all. Remember that phrase. I had mm. people years later in Tripoli, and not even in Tripoli, some country in Paris, a Libyan guy, quoting those lines back to me because they replayed them quite a bit and i said i said well yeah you know they are actually demonstrating against you what demonstrations and i said i've seen them today it seems uh, like interesting denial to be honest like he just doesn't have kind he believed of it he believed they loved him yeah i do think that mm. i really think and some did i mean there were people who were doing well out of it I, mean, I remember after the fall of Gaddafi, I was leaving after one trip and people were, there was chaos and, in, in, you know, it's been chaos pretty much ever since. But um, I got on the plane um, in um, Tunis, you know, because you have, by then you have to go up by road to Tunis and then um, fly from there. And it was a plane via, back to London via Hamburg, I remember. And the guy next to me had a sort of duffel bag, canvas bag. And he was fiddling with it. It was his handbag. He took the top off to stuff down what was in there. And I looked at it. It was a pretty sizable sort of sports bag. And it was packed with wads of 100 and 500 euro notes. He had tens of thousands of them that he was carrying out in a bag. God knows where he got them from. They all look brand new. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest problems was with kind of his fall in power was kind of the amount of money and everything that was just spread around the country and meant that kind of militias formed because people would then be stealing money um, off, you know, taking part of Gaddafi's house of Benghazi and then um, another militia would argue and dispute the fact that why did they take it and not them? And then that's how kind of the internal fractures within the country started, that militias began and started to attack themselves. Now I know power. Yeah, power. Exactly. Now I know that um, 
kind of a lot of people after kind of the fall of Gaddafi were feeling quite optimistic and going, oh, okay, maybe in five, 10 years, this country, you know, will rebuild itself. The economy will get back on its feet, you know, with the vast amount of oil that's within the economy, it could, you know, be a prosperous economy that could, could be successful. Um, obviously now, what, nine, nine years down the line and we've not seen much progress. Um, do, you, do you have any um, ideas um, as to why that may have happened um, or anything along those lines? Yeah, um, at the, you're right. To start with, there were plenty of people who thought it might be okay because they, there was a sense of ownership about the revolution. Um, they believed that they'd overthrown their own guy. I think they, I think that had NATO and the Emiratis and others and the Qataris not intervened, the, Gaddafi would have crushed the, the rebellion. He had the troops to do it. He was ruthless enough to do it. But NATO and the others provided the rebels with an air force, which was the key difference. Mm. Um, but then politically they walked away afterwards. In fact, the, I mean, the people in the various revolutionary councils that sprung up didn't want them there to be fair, but I think they could have done more. And I think that the desire to declare victory and go home after, you know, uh, Cameron and Sarkozy got fated by very ecstatic crowds in Benghazi, mm. um, that's, that's that was that was damaging, and I also think that um, the the a big big part of the problem was that the way that the regime had run things was that the regime was the family and its close cronies, and the family was the regime. So you, all of the institutions have been basically hollowed out by Gaddafi. So when you took the family away, and it happened very, very fast, everything collapsed. There was no state. There were no institutions. The ministries were just nameplates. Uh, there wasn't a functional legal system. There were valiant people trying to put it all together. But if you don't have institutions, it's very difficult. Then if you add to that local rivalries, rivalries between cities, rivalries between tribes. Uh, everybody was armed to the teeth. Uh, Libya was a very heavily armed country and they'd broken out, you know, they'd broken open all of Gaddafi's arms, caches. Uh, so altogether, it was a recipe for disaster and that is in fact what ensued. Exactly. Um, so for this kind of next section, what we're going to do is um, we'll kind of ask you more general questions about um, your experiences in the Middle East as a whole, uh, and then we'll move on to our Q&A session. So for everyone in the audience, uh, if you have any questions that you would like to ask Jeremy, start having a think from now. And what you can do is you can either type them in the chat from now and we'll read them out to Jeremy or you can actually you know, turn on your camera and ask your question in person um, when the Q&A session comes. So Jeremy, like my first question to you is, you've interviewed so many kind of people in your career. Um, so which one has stood out the most to you in the Middle East and why? 
Well, that interview I did with Gaddafi was very memorable. And at the time, it made an enormous impact because Libya was top of the world news and everybody wanted to, uh, to hear from Gaddafi. That was one thing. Uh, also, 2015, I had a big interview with President Bashar al-Assad in Damascus. Again, that was a time when people, he hadn't done a proper one, you know, in which he was challenged for some time. And so that was, you know, quite a newsmaking interview and had a big play around the world. So that was quite satisfying. Uh, but, you know, I've also interviewed people who are very interesting, but on a, um, you know, quite ordinary, you would never have heard of. And um, I'll give you one example. I was in, in Syria in uh, the end of 2018. And we persuaded, I, was, I had a visa, I'd gone in on the side of the regime. And uh, I'd been on the rebel side as well. But on this occasion, I was on the side of the regime. And uh, we got permission to go to, I had an idea that we would go around Idlib province, which even then, just like now, was the last substantial piece of ground held by anti-Assad forces. And I thought it'd be interesting to go around the perimeter of it on the regime side. And so they, um, we went to a, a Christian town and we were welcomed by the local Christian warlord. Uh, the Christians there and most of the other minorities, as many of you will know, uh, tend to support the regime either actively or tacitly. Um, and uh, him, he was a character. He had long black hair. He had this sort of biblical... Um, he was stared at me, he was aggressive, and they turned out he was quite nice when I stood up to him. And, uh, and we, uh, we drove around his positions in his enormous, great, massive American black pickup truck. He had, I looked down, it was nine o'clock in the morning, I looked down at my feet, so I had this clinking, and in the footwell of this huge American uh, pickup was his Kalashnikov, and a bottle of whiskey, a Johnny Walker Black Label. Clink, 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 clink. He said, oh, yes, I think it's time for whiskey. So uh, one, of his one of his men um, brought a proper whiskey glass with full of ice, and he put it down in the sort of central, in the, the mug holder area. He filled it up with whiskey, and he had a syrup, and he offered me some, so I had a sip. And, you know, we drove around like that, drinking whiskey at, eight, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning. It was... Um, yeah, it was an interesting experience all around. We met some Russians. Uh, he had the, they had a lot of Russians around there who were all enormous, great, massive men. Um, and uh, they were interesting to talk to, you know, very interesting to talk about their attitudes, about what they were doing there. They all thought they were fighting um, jihadist extremists. That was the message that came from all of that was the official line. Anyway, so that was quite good. Yeah, it was, I mean... One good one thing about my job is you do meet quite a lot of interesting people. I'm sure. Um, so what was like your most powerful moment in the Middle East where you saw a glimmer of hope that things could improve? Not for a while. There'd been moments when we thought there were. I mean, I went to live in Jerusalem um, in 1995, I was there for five years, 
Uh, I left just before the second intifada, which was a matter of deep regret to me because I didn't want to miss it. Um, but at that point, it was when the Oslo peace process was going strong and people really believed on all sides. And I, I kid you not, they really thought there was a chance that there would be quite soon an independent Palestinian state with a capital in Jerusalem, sharing Jerusalem with the Israelis. Uh, and, you know, of course, after the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin, um, Netanyahu within a year was in power. Um, the Oslo process fell to bits. Um, there have been other moments of hope. Um, 2011 is a good example that's already been mentioned. I was in uh, Tahrir Square in Cairo on, I mean, every day of the uprising there in, in 2011. I was in Cairo and I went every day, spent all day there. Uh, and it was interesting because it was different every day. And, you know, and they were fighting as well to keep control of it. Uh, Mubarak sent his thugs in. Uh, there was, you know, massive tons of pebble beach of stones that they were throwing and all kinds of stuff going on because it's a very large area. Um, and, uh, but that, I mean, the joy in that, there were, you know, probably 50,000 people in the square when it came out, it was announced on the radio and uh, Cairo, you know, in Cairo, that the uh, that Mubarak had stepped down, and they went berserk. And you know, any Egyptians here will know that the Egyptians like a party. And uh, my God, they were going strong all night. Uh, they were, and there was real hope. And people really thought things would change. But of course, if you look at the state of of Egypt now, with uh, Sisi in charge, the situation regarding freedom of speech, human rights, personal freedoms, ability to express yourself is worse than it was under Mubarak. Definitely. I mean, as an Egyptian myself, like it's definitely a topic that's really close to my heart. And I thought that maybe with um, the election of President Morsi, there was a glimmer of hope that, um, you know, the condition would somewhat change. So like, where do you think you know, it went wrong over the years. Gosh. Well, um, I interviewed Mursi, actually, not long after, before he was president. And I, I used to talk a lot to people in the uh, Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and I think it was a number of factors. First of all, the, you know, the, if you want to call them the revolutionaries, the mainly youngish student types, who were in the square, and it wasn't just them, but they were the most vocal, uh, because you cannot have a revolution just with young, um, somewhat middle-class kids. You need the poor, especially in a place like Cairo, where there are a lot of urban poor. And on the first proper day of demos, when um, there was a fright, well, they'd, had, they'd taken over the square early in the week, then I went over there, then there was the Friday, and Friday was going to be a big day. The regime cut the cut the um, internet off, and everybody had been communicating via text and so on, and email. Um, what's that wasn't going in those days? Well, no, it was just starting. Anyway, uh, he, um, yeah, they cut all that off. And then I thought, well, is this really going to, I'd be, you know, I'd, I'd seen a few false starts in Egypt over a couple of years before that. 
And it was only that day when I saw not just what one guy was interviewing who had been to university in America called the, the Rolex Brigade, uh, but uh, it was the poor people, you know, guys in rags, basically, who were attacking the police fans, turning them over, setting them on fire. My God, those men were angry. And they were, um, and then I thought, well, this is serious. If poor people are involved, this is serious. Shows how desperate they are. I think what went wrong after the, um, politically it was handled really badly by the the sort of quote unquote revolutionary forces. They fell out with each other. They got involved in endless political dramas. Um, the, um, the only two really organized forces in the country were the military and the brotherhood. Uh, so in the end, it came down to that. And when the first election came, the revolutionary Tuckeroo Square types didn't have a candidate in the fight by the end. It came down to the regime versus, sorry, the former regime in the shape of the military um, against the Brotherhood, and the Brotherhood won. And then when the Brotherhood were in power, it turned out they'd been quite good at running hospitals, very good at running hospitals and social welfare networks and things like that. They weren't very good in power, and they alienated, you know, what, as you'll know, that um, many people in Egypt referred to as the party of the couch, people who hadn't been in demonstrations, but they had been... Um, uh, you know, watching what was going on and being a bit worried. It got very lawless. Supporters of Mubarak made sure that happened too. That didn't help. It was very lawless. People were scared to, you know, they, they, it was full of stories about people being attacked, going to work, and it was nasty on the streets. Uh, you didn't feel safe at all. Um, and so that when the military did, mounted their coup and took over, then it was, I mean, the country was very split. Quite a lot of people backed the military. And uh, the Brotherhood was, well, as you know, what's happened to the Brotherhood. Uh, and a lot of them have died in jail. And now, I mean, in a sense, it sort of stripped away the facade, which is that since uh, the um, Nasser's revolution in 1952, uh, the, the most powerful force in the country has been the armed forces. And they control the economy, much of it. They, they control the state. And they are the power. And they've asserted their power. And they, and they were faced with a situation where they would have to lose it to the Brotherhood. And they were not prepared to accept that. Plus, of course, they've had support from Western countries. Because having the military in power is a more attractive prospect for the US or for Britain, I'd say, than the Brotherhood. I was there in 2013 when they carried out those massacres. Uh, I got shot myself. And I was very lucky because I was quite shot in a fairly minor way. Uh, I wasn't badly hurt. But, I mean, a guy next to me had the whole back of his head blown off. I mean, it was they were firing into the crowd of Muslim brothers with the side of the Muslim Brotherhood demonstrators, physically speaking. So, yeah, it was a very tough time, very tough. And it's very tough now, you know, the, the, the situation of free speech in, in Egypt is catastrophic. Yeah. I, 
I really appreciate your insight into that question. Um, thank you very much for that, Jeremy. Sure. So we're getting a lot of questions now. Um, I'm looking at the same, yeah. Yeah, it might be a good time to move on to the Q&A uh, section. So I think the first question we've received is, I met two journalists reporting on Syria and they said there is no more Assad regime, that it's essentially a foreign occupation and that local towns have already pretty much implemented their own elections. They claim that Assad was regaining these towns through Russian bombing, then sending in foot soldiers to clean up. What's your opinion on this? And is Assad still strong or is it essentially foreign powers fighting proxy wars in Syria? Well, it's, in a sense, it's all of those things. Uh, Assad is, the regime is very much there, um, but they are only there because they have foreign support from the Russians and from Iran principally. Uh, there are also pro-Iranian militias, including militias from Iraq, who are there. I've spent time with some of those militias in Iraq and in Iran. Um, sorry, not in Iran, in Iraq and in Syria. Um, but at the same time, there are these proxy wars that have been going on. The fate of Syria has not been in the hands of Syrians now for a long time. Uh, it's in the hands of, well, it's a mixture. It's, it's Iran, Russia, Turkey in the, in the north. Uh, Israel regularly bomb Iranian and regime positions as well sometimes. Uh, but as well as that, uh, what's also going on is that while, if you go to Damascus for the last couple of years, Damascus has seemed to be back, quote unquote, to normal. So if you go into the, the suburbs of Damascus, which are, were very poor areas, mainly with Sunni migrants from rural parts of the country, uh, and they were you know, full of, they were unemployed, angry, and many, many of those picked up guns. Um, but in the center, it looks normal. And the, you know, the bar area in the old city which was the old city for years was absolutely dead at night. There was nothing moving. Syrians were frightened to go out because there were various nasty militias. There were also <clears throat> criminal elements. There were kidnappings for ransom. But a couple of years when I was last there, I haven't had a visa for two years. So I haven't been back since. But when I was there in 2018, the... Uh, the Christian quarter in the old city is the, the, the bar area. And the bars, restaurants were open up. It was like Beirut. It was incredible. Um, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. But if you go elsewhere in the country, clearly it's in ruins, it's in pieces. Uh, there's a resurgence by <clears throat> ISIS in central desert area. And in the, the south, around Dara, where a, a lot of this started, uh, once again, the, the so-called reconciliation process there has not worked and various rebel units who are incorporated into a wider Syrian force are asserting their independence. Um, plus the, the Druze community there are going their own way. So in a sense, Syria has fractured into different quadrants, which are, um, you know, there's warlordism, a lot of warlordism happening. Uh, so it's a mixture of foreign powers that have intervened. The regime does have its own areas. And we've got to be absolutely frank, and I've been always trolled on social media when I reported this. 
but the regime would not have survived the way that it has if it didn't have genuine support. Uh, and there are people who have always supported the regime, not just because they didn't like the alternatives, but because they supported the regime, because the regime had been good to them. And without those people, Assad would never have survived before the big foreign interventions. So it's, you know, it is not clear cut that everybody is far from it was against him. But yeah, so it's a tragedy for Syria. There is no real end in sight. Uh, half the country displaced, half of those refugees abroad, the other half displaced within the country. No one knows exactly, but maybe 500,000 dead out of a pre-war population of about 21 million. Country's in absolute ruins. Uh, hundreds of billions of dollars would be needed to rebuild it, and no one's going to come up with that. So Syria was was had its problems, but it's always been very friendly. The people are very decent. Uh, I've had some uh, wonderful times in Syria, and it's a uh, many. It's incredibly historic. It was a wonderful place to visit before the war. I mean, if you forgot about the fact it was a police state, of course. Um, but to be there as a foreign tourist. I actually, the year before the war, I took my, my mother, who was then in her 70s, and my daughter, who was then nine. We went to Beirut and to the Bekaa in Lebanon, and we traveled right through Syria, and it was great for them. Um, then a year later, of course, everything changed. Thank you for that, Jeremy. Um, so just like a reminder, so if you do want to ask um, your question with your camera on, um, you can raise your hand um, and like we'll allow you to do so. Um, so I have a question from Makrim who asks, um, having seen what you've seen, what is the most shocking thing you've witnessed and how has it affected your perspective since? Um, well, in my job over many years, not just in the Middle East, I've seen many uh, really horrendous acts of violence. Um, oh God, where do you begin? I was in um, Baghdad during the 1991 Gulf War and uh, the Americans bombed uh, a shelter, an air raid shelter. It was a time when the Americans and the British were bombing the city. And they bombed an air raid shelter, which they claimed was a command post and it wasn't. And they killed 450, approximately, civilians. It was an area of Baghdad called Amaria, which is quite a prosperous, um, middle-class area. In those days, a lot of Iraqis went to be educated abroad. So when we went there to cover the story, and I saw all the bodies coming out in bits, being loaded onto lorries, women, children, and old men. There were no men of military age there, but there were men outside, and then we covered it. And uh, so that was a shocking sight, actually. Um, and I liked it. I didn't like it. I liked it as a story because men didn't like it. It's the wrong word. It was a very telling story because it did expose the truth about, at that time, <clears throat> satellite-guided weapons were a very new thing. And the Americans were, were putting out the idea that this was somehow a clean war that it was just, you know, bingo, you hit what you needed, and that was, you only got the bad guys. But this proved that that wasn't the case. And because it happened in Baghdad and not somewhere in the middle of the countryside, 
we saw it. And I interviewed people outside, uh, some of whom were government officials because it was that kind of an area, um, quite a few of whom spoke English because they'd been educated abroad. And then so there were pieces in the papers here saying it was a complete fake. No one had heard of the term fake news in those days, but essentially they were saying it was all invented by Saddam and the regime. And he had, de he had deliberately planted people there who would provide interviews in English. But of course, they didn't know that many Iraqis were highly educated and had been educated in the West and spoke English extremely well. Uh, so meeting people there who were able to give a coherent interview in English was far from unusual at that point. So, I mean, it was all propaganda. I mean, it was the British coverage was all propaganda. What, what we did was, was true, but so that was shocking. And there'd been many other instances of, of violence and you know, people suffering that I've seen perpetrated by all kinds of people, all sides, basically. Oh, the second part, how has it affected my perspective? People often say to me, how are you able to be a reporter and be impartial when you see awful things? Uh, don't you just want to jump up and down and yell about it? Well, yes, of course you do. But as a journalist, my strong belief, and we have this concept of impartiality, it's not objectivity, it's impartiality. Don't think anybody can be, <coughs> excuse me, fully objective because we all view the world through a certain prism. Education, beliefs, experience. Um, but I think you can be impartial, which is basically putting your views in a box and reporting on what you see. And, and that doesn't mean to say you can say, well, he says that and she says that and the truth lies somewhere in between. You can't. It's like saying you cannot say that two and two sometimes make four, but often they make five. No, two and two always makes four. So with impartiality, impartial reporting, you lay out your thinking and you can draw a conclusion that it's still fair. Uh, so my view is, even though I might be deeply affronted and offended by what I've seen, it's not about me. It's not about my, how I think. It's about how, what's happening to them. And it's my job to report that, to represent it, and to explain it to the people with my audience, not just in Britain, but, you know, the BBC these days, we have hundreds of millions of people around the world who watch. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so my perspective is that I am um, I, I'm a bit cynical about uh, what governments do, but I don't let, try and let that um, affect my reporting. And in fact, you know, it was similar when I was doing former Yugoslavia wars in the 90s. And I, I've I appeared in one, two, four criminal trials at the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, former Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal. Uh, and, and my reporting was admitted as evidence. And that, I think, is because it was measured, I hope, and wasn't, oh, my God, I'm so shocked by this. Well, of course, we're shocked by it. But that's not the point. The point is what happened, to whom, and why. And that's my job to do it. And so that stuff I did like that was um, admitted as evidence at the, at the tribunal. I was pleased about that.
And if there's ever a war crimes tribunal of the Middle East, I hope some of my reporting is also admitted, but I kind of doubt that's ever going to happen. <coughs> Thank you for that, Jeremy. Um, so we have a couple of, um, of people with their hands up now, so we're going to allow them to ask their question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, we've got lots of questions coming in the chat, so um, if we could try to get through them. Okay, I'll, I'll try and give shorter answers. Yeah, cool. So Lamia, um, can ask you a question. Hi, um, I just wanted to quickly introduce myself. I'm, my name is Lamia and I come from Yemen. I'm currently studying comparative politics of the Middle East and North Africa at the University of Liverpool. So I was just really interested in your perspective in terms of the period of Gamal Abdel Nasser and the rise of Arab nationalism at the time. As a journalist yourself, would you do you think that we still have a sense of Arab nationalism today, despite the sense of hostility and betrayal and conflict between Middle Eastern states, for example, Saudi's war on Yemen, the, you know, the relations between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain and so on? Well, that's a very interesting um, question, which is what people always say when they're just trying to think what the answer is. Um, I think that, um, you know, if you if you have the misfortune ever to go to a press conference at the Arab League, then you will hear them talking about Arab nationalism because it's one of those things that you just talk about, but it's talk. Because Arabs, as you'll know from studying their comparative politics, there are some deep, deep divisions between different countries, different blocs, and, you know, you can just see it in the newspapers, you know, the row between the GCC and Qatar. Um, and you mentioned a few other things yourself. Um, Nasser himself was seen as, you know, if you, if for those who know the history, 1956, he uh, inflicted a heavy political defeat on the British particularly, but also the French and the Israelis. Militarily, they lost. But it didn't matter because they lost the politics of it. And he therefore became the, uh, the hero of the Arab world. And his doctrine of pan-Arabism was going to be, an Arab socialism was going to be the answer. But then 1967 came. There's a very good book about it by Jeremy Bowen called Six Days. Mm -hmm. if you're interested. Um, solve all your present issues if you've got birthdays or whatever coming up. Um, and... Uh, and that showed, you know, because the, the Egyptians, the big, um, the Egyptians were boasting they won in the first few days when the Israelis had destroyed their air force on the ground. That was such a shock to so many people who had been so convinced that this force that Nasser had unleashed would have, you know, one of the reasons Egyptians did so badly, of course, was they had uh, had the best part of their army in, Ye in Yemen for a long time, and they'd really taken a pasting at the hands of the, of the Yemenis. So um, that discredited all of that. I think people afterwards, more and more people, young people, turned to the mosques for answers. I think Arab nationalism in the pan-Arab sense is just Ba'athism, uh, those things are historic, of historical interest now. I think that there is, however, as many of you guys will know better than me, there is a wider Arab identity 
which is based on culture, shared culture, shared language, for some people on religion. But the idea that Arabs could all get together and be strong and return to the days of yore through pan-Arabism, that idea has long been discredited. Perfect, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so we'll go to the next person who has a question, uh, which is Sumi. So I'll let Sumi speak now. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm just trying to figure out Zoom. Um. Sorry about that. I don't really use Zoom. Um. My question was: With today's breaking news in Morocco, agreeing to maintain diplomatic relation with Israel, what do you think is your future vision on North Africa, and how do you see politics as well as government um, developing? I guess in general throughout the next few years. Well, Morocco has always had closer relations with Israel than many other countries in Middle East and North, and North Africa. There's a large community of Moroccan Jews in Israel who've retained links with their homeland. Uh, you know, leaders of political parties in Israel have been uh, guys born in Morocco. There's one anyway. Uh, you, you, for, for years, Morocco was a, one of the few countries where you could turn up with an Israeli stamp in your passport and still be allowed in. Uh, that would never have happened in many countries now. I mean, not least until their recent normalization deal with the, the Emiratis. Um, you know, the fact is, the truth is that the, all the countries who have now normalized Relations and it was something that was prompted by Trump and Gerard Kushner, his, his you know, the first son-in-law. Uh, all those countries have always had close relations for many years with Israel, but under the table. And now they have chosen to come out with it because it was politically a good a good moment. Plus, they have a shared adversary, which is Iran, uh, and. So what's interesting is not so much that they have the relations, but the timing of it. And what's also, of course, significant for the Palestinians is that the what was an Arab consensus uh, about, um, you know, the Arab peace offer, which was normalization with Israel in exchange for Palestinian independence, that consensus is very much broken now, uh, which is yet another piece of bad news for Palestinians on top of all the other pieces of bad news that they regularly have to absorb. Uh, so, um, creation of Palestine as a result of, it's difficult, you know, um, I, I do think that it is impossible historically for one country, I think history shows that it's impossible to keep millions of people in the position that the Palestinians are in forever. It has been an awfully long time. Um, and I do think... I'm starting to think that the, the most likely scenario is some kind of one-state solution now rather than two states. I think, and I don't see how that works. Uh, so I don't know if it's a solution. I still think two-state solution is the only realistic peace option. But on both sides, the leaderships are very, you know, Netanyahu is completely against it ideologically. I don't know how much longer he'll be there. But on the other side, uh, 
Abu Mazen is uh, he's old, he's ill, he's cynical, doesn't do much. The Palestinians react. They don't have a policy. They react to things. And uh, they lost one of their, you know, better, best people recently, Arakat, in the leadership who died of COVID. Um, so, I mean, they need a new generator. They need fresh blood. And at the moment, they're not getting it. Thank you, Jeremy. So we're going to move on to our penultimate question uh, of the night. Um, so Nimra has her hand up, so we'll go to her. Hi, hello, Jeremy. Um, it's a pleasure to talk with you and um, hear your experiences um, covering the Middle East. Um, I had a question, and I think you've already covered it, um, about you know having seen the outcome of civilian violence, destruction, and political uh, chaos. How did you manage your own personal views and moral judgments when interviewing you know such powerful um, and essentially dangerous people at the time? Um, um, how do you you know you know set aside your personal views and your you know, moral judgments on the regime outcomes? Well, I, I touched on that, but I'll give you a little bit more on that, if you like. Um, and that is, I do think that there is, you know, there's a template against which you can measure um, the behavior of, of a regime, and that's with international humanitarian law. Uh, so while, in a sense, it's more there symbolically than anything, because they break it willy-nilly, uh, you can say, well, you know, you're not able, you're not supposed to bomb civilians. Uh Yes, if you hit the hospital and the rebels have put a machine gun on the top of it or anti-aircraft or something like that, then um, the dog's going to answer my front door. Do you hear my front door being, bell, bell being, on, being rung then? Hang on. Sorry. Well, sorry about this. Someone got to answer the door. Quickly, Bertie. Sorry. Pleasures of working from home. Um... Uh, yeah, so the answer is you've got to put your own feelings to one side. You know, I shook hands with, with Assad, and I've shaken hands with people who've done terrible things. Um, and I had a perfectly civilized conversation with him. In reality, Assad, I mean, Gaddafi was deeply eccentric and a bit weird. Assad, when you meet him, he's extremely polite. I mean, he's polite on a level you would not believe. He stands up when you enter the room. He stands back when you go through the door. He practically breaks his back so that you go through the door ahead of him. He's extremely courteous. He, uh, and he thinks that he is pragmatic, uh, that he has got the interests of his people at heart, um, and that he, he wants to be, I think, like his father, who was the guy who wouldn't move things around the chessboard a bit. And he aspires, I think, to be that. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Sorry about getting up and the dog and the door. So we're going to finish off with the last question. So um, the last question from Juan. Uh, do you think that uh, what we see on the news regarding the Middle East is fully representative of what actually occurs? If not, why do you think the media isn't so transparent with the rest of the world? I, I honestly don't think, I mean, I can't, I, I'll only speak for the BBC. I can't speak for other people. Um, we don't lie about things. Uh, we don't willfully distort. 
Honestly, we don't. We try and do our best. You can criticize sometimes about the frame within which people look at it. You know, sometimes it's seen from very much from a, a Western perspective. Um, I think that's a fair criticism. Um, I think there are assumptions behind some of the coverage which sometimes tend to get in the way of the truth. That's sometimes because people, you know, are not totally steeped in all the complications of the region. I tell people when they're going there for the first few times, just be, keep it very simple. Keep it really simple when you're reporting. Um, bar reporting, I think, is, is pretty good in the main. Um, we do do our best. Uh, we do, we're not perfect. We do make mistakes sometimes. That's absolutely the case. Um, the, I mean, my complaint about it is we don't often get enough of it. And that's because the preoccupations are, um, of the editors are, are quite often domestic. You know, this last year, it's been all COVID and a bit of Brexit, odd bit of Trump. The year before it was Brexit. Uh, so there was stuff going on which, you know, we couldn't get on air or we only got, a, got it on air on BBC World News. So you wouldn't have seen it on the 10 o'clock news because they're only, you know, they only have about 26 minutes uh, and you have to squeeze it all in. So that's my complaint. I mean, my issue is sometimes it's easy to get things on if there has been some horrendous incident. So you have a top line that's, you know, dripping in blood. And while it's very valid to do those stories, what I always try and argue, and sometimes succeed and sometimes I don't, is that when a situation is building, we go and do the story, even though it might not be dramatic, because then people will understand more. And then if it gets to the point where something awful happens, uh, then uh, the viewers will think, oh, yeah, yeah, well, actually, we saw, we saw that there was some trouble brewing over there. Okay, I get it now. And hopefully what you hope is that things start falling into place. I mean, in practice, there's a quite a lot of ignorance about the Middle East, in, not willful ignorance. In, in, I'm talking about in, in Britain and in Europe and certainly in America as well. Uh, and it's not necessarily willful. People are interested, and I think that they're getting the message that actually if you're sitting on a beach in the Mediterranean on your holiday in Spain or somewhere, or uh, Italy, Sicily, you know, you uh, just on the other side of the horizon, there's North Africa. It's not very far away at all, and it does affect our lives. And so that's the message I try and get out. And sometimes I succeed, and sometimes I don't. And sometimes, as I say, it is a function of, of how much else is happening in the world. Perfect. Thank you very much for your answer there, Jeremy. Um, I would, just to conclude now, I'd just like to say thank you to everyone that's come in and joined. Um, and thank you again, Jeremy, for joining us today um, on this talk. Um, and yeah, thank you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. I'm very uh, happy to... The only sad thing is I can't, you know, if it was normal times, we could be meeting somewhere for real. Yeah. But I've forgotten what that feels like. So, you know, this is this is reality for me now. Um, doorbell ringing, dog passing by, and everything that goes with it. So, um, anyway, uh, have a very good evening. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.